This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. We're not very keen on protecting the NHS, are we? They've had two years, two years to get their acts together. The Metropolitan Police are meant to serve Londoners. Londoners are not meant to serve the Metropolitan Police. For her victory, for her youth, for her temperament, for her lack of grunting, we salute you, Emma Raducanu. Oh, Groundhog Day, Halligan. Groundhog Day, isn't it? Oh. One. We have liftoff. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. So, having unveiled a £36 billion tax rise to pay for social care and help clear the NHS backlog... Boris Johnson's government has now paved the way for fresh COVID curbs this winter. Government scientists on cue warn that this ghastly virus could cripple our health service again, which means we could see another round of compulsory mask wearing, working from home and other restrictions we associate with our pre-vaccine COVID world. We don't need to go back to lockdowns of the past, said Johnson, but he refused to rule them out saying he would do whatever's necessary to prevent the overwhelming, his words, of the NHS. So we're set, it seems, for another autumn full of doubt and trepidation. The superannuated public sector boffins are piling in as ever, with the latest SAGE document warning hospitalisations could soar to 7,000 a day by next month. And on top of that, inflation's just hit a nine-year high, as the economy has stalled so much for our rapid V-shaped recovery. We've warned here on Planet Normal, haven't we, co-pilot, of a winter of discontent? How about an autumn of discontent? (laughs) A phrase Shakespeare never used. Oh, Groundhog Day, Halligan. Groundhog Day, isn't it? Oh, God. Can I be the first to say that we're not very keen on protecting the NHS, are we? They've had two years... Two years to get their acts together. A waiting list of approaching, probably going to soar over 13 million people. And still everyone's supposed to curtail their lives to make sure they're not overwhelmed. As you say, co-pilot, big briefing on the winter plan, plan A and plan B. Boris, as is the usual dynamic on these occasions, there was... Boris trying to be upbeat and to his right was Professor Witty, who was sort of scuttling out of the crypt with the latest kind of death figures. He's, he's not your favourite person, Chris Whitty, is it? It must, it must be said. I mean, I'm not saying you cheered when that footage of him being hassled in a park went viral, but he's not your favourite person. Well, on ethical and scientific grounds, in fact, I'm not the only one, Liam, because Marcus Fish, the Conservative MP, said Chris Whitty should resign this week for approving the vaccinations of all healthy teenagers without a good clinical reason. And I'll second that, but we'll come back to that in a minute. So at this winter plan press briefing, Boris was saying he hoped the situation could be kept stable with more jabs and people behaving sensibly. And as you said, there. I've got other things in the so-called toolkit, compulsory masks, working from home and vaccine passports, which you'll have noticed, Liam, that many Conservative MPs actually booed in the Commons when vaccine passports were mentioned. And once again, yes, the Prime Minister said he would do whatever was necessary to prevent the overwhelming of the NHS, which they've just bunged 36 billion quid to. There was witty, of course, the ghouls on Sage urging the Prime Minister to move further and faster and harder. This bunch of sadomasochists at the BBC saying, you know, how soon can we get back into these really strict restrictions, even though COVID cases are currently plummeting? And as you said, sage experts claimed 
that hospitalizations could soar to 7,000 admissions a day, then that's even more than at the last winter peak. And Chris Whitty actually said at the briefing that infections were high relative to last year and the health service was already under extreme pressure. Now, I wasn't convinced of this, Liam. Do you want to say something or should we have a, have, should we have a kind of fact check from the brilliant George? Let's go to George, I think, because we haven't had much of George in recent weeks. And George is a senior source within NHS England. George has full access to the internal data. We don't disclose his or her identity. We're very confident of the authenticity of George's stats. And that's why we report them here on Planet Normal, but we can't independently verify them as we ordinarily would because George gives them to us before they're published, if indeed they're published at all. And I know that you've been talking to George and getting key insights that no other journalist has from that NHS database. So how does what the government advisors are saying publicly, witty and valence and so on, stack up when you look at the data internally that George provides? Yes, Liam, that's right. So I put to George Chris Whitty's saying that the infections were high and the NHS was already under extreme pressure. And George said... We never even had 7,000 hospitalizations a day at either of the two major peaks. In January last year, we had just over 4,000 admissions a day. But at the same time, 3,000 COVID patients were being discharged, leaving a net of just 1,000 additional beds being occupied per day at that peak. And let's remind ourselves, Liam, that that is 1,000 beds occupied by COVID out of 110,000 beds available in NHS England. That's something that Hugh Pym, the BBC's resident pallbearer and health editor, won't tell you. So less than 1% of NHS beds in England. At the peak, all right? Yeah. So George goes on, right now, admissions are down. In total, there are 6,338 COVID patients in hospital in England as of 8am on the 14th of September. The main thing to point out is that the trends for total inpatients, admissions and diagnoses and discharges have now all been stable for almost two whole months. Yes, the daily variation can bobble about a bit, but the underlying trend is just flat. In the meantime, George says, COVID cases peaked in mid-July, possibly after the Euros, Liam, at a point almost as high as we saw in January 2021 before the vaccine rollout got going. So we were not talking about insignificant numbers of cases over the summer like we were last year. George says hospitals have also been busy with lots of other work, of course, trying to catch up both elective and emergency work throughout the summer, probably busier in many places than they would normally be in the summer months. Now, George says this idea from Professor Witty that we are starting from a higher base than we were this time last year, and therefore this winter has the potential to be even worse than last year, purely due to COVID, is just fiction. For a start, we had no vaccinations last year. Now we have a year's worth of less people having had the virus and have been vaccinated against it. It is breathtakingly arrogant of the government and SAGE to stand there and gaslight the British population into thinking things are going to get really bad again. And George says... You know, I suspect some of the media don't want this to end. They're going to keep ramping up the fear because they know it sells. Last night, the BBC had a report saying Nottingham intensive care was under severe pressure. Now, one of Nottingham's hospitals is reporting a high level of COVID pressure, but the other two hospitals are both green. So clearly they are load balancing very well across their three sites. It is so irresponsible of the BBC to pick out the exceptions and present them as the rule. I'm not sure I can manage this for another autumn winter. It does feel like Groundhog Day, says George. So just to say, Liam, what does that tell us? That tells us that we're being told, oh, yes, the NHS is going to be overwhelmed. 
all the usual suspects want us to think that it's going to be overwhelmed. And it suits the NHS very well, doesn't it, to present this tragic narrative, Hugh Pym lurking outside, you know, one of the two packed ICUs in the country. And it's absolutely outrageous, really, because I don't think there's any possibility our own Telegraph's own Sarah Napton, the science editor who's had who's been so fantastic throughout, said that the COVID winter won't compare to last year. So why is the government even considering severe measures, which, as we know, co-pilot, are what's caused this tremendous backlog in the NHS? I think you're right about this, Alison. I think there's going to be a lot of political argy-bargy. I think a lot of the Conservative backbenchers won't accept renewed anti-COVID restrictions, given that so many of us have now been vaccinated and the ONS data, the most authoritative data, shows that levels of immunity are now so high. You've also got an economy that stalled the last GDP number in July. Growth was 0.1%, far, far lower than was expected. You've got 3 3.5% inflation coming through now, and that's consumer price inflation, the input price inflation, the inflation that factories are experiencing, which will eventually be largely or at least partly passed on in goods and indeed in services. That's running at 10% in July, 11% inflation. You are going to see these cost of living increases. You can already see them in petrol prices, in food prices. And that's why I think there will be a lot of organisation by trade unions. I think there'll be a lot of pushing for higher wages. I think even people working in the gig economy are going to be pushing for higher wages amidst labour shortages. And that's why rather than a winter of discontent in November, December, January that we've been predicting on Planet Normal for a while now, you could even see it's autumn of discontent, October, even September now, the political temperature ramping up, voters getting increasingly disconcerted with the government. And I think you're starting to see this move in the opinion polls now with the Tories losing their lead in some opinion polls, but they're not losing their lead because Labour's gaining. They're losing the lead because smaller parties, the likes of Richard Tice's Reform Party, are sort of coming through and taking nips out of the big parties, biting at their ankles. And I think there's going to be a lot of this in the next weeks and months to come. We've said, Liam, haven't we, what we've been picking up from listeners is a gradual disenchantment with the Prime Minister, with the government. And I think that the polls are now starting to reflect what what we've been picking up anecdotally. So what we're saying now, (laughs) are they threatening measures to contain COVID or to stop COVID overwhelming the NHS for something which has the same threat to most of us as seasonal flu? And I guess the question I'd ask you Is the NHS more important than the people it serves? Because the impression I'm getting is what this is all about is the Conservative government cannot afford the embarrassment of the NHS collapsing on its watch. So it's basically you're all you lot are all going to have to stay home again if there's any threat to the NHS. And I am absolutely sick of this bloated organisation, as we've often said, Liam, some fantastic doctors and nurses, many of them planet normal listeners. But is there any other country in the world where they're constantly being told that you've got to have restrictions to to preserve your health service? And, And Chris Whitty said that the number of hospital admissions and the speed of increases plus the ratio of deaths to admissions was going to be what determines their decision about whether we're all going to be, you know, made to go home again. I just do not think this is acceptable. And I hope that millions of people will 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 just say no, you know, just absolutely not. We've we've had enough now. We've got, you know, highly vaccinated population. Which brings us on to my other huge beef of the week, Halligan. Did you see me did you see me ranting against the approval of the vaccination of twelve to fifteen year olds? I, I did indeed. And before we come on to that, we should just say that both of us support free at the point of use healthcare in this country. What we think, though, is that the NHS is not very good at delivering free at the point of use healthcare, at least not in its current form. There are all kinds of systems used around the world 
that deliver free at the point of use healthcare. You don't need one organization with over a million employees that's bloated, a, a complete money pit. There's no reform. Talk to any NHS people honestly and openly off the record, and they'll tell you how much waste there is in the system, how much better we could be doing with our money, delivering better outcomes for ordinary people. We've got the emergence now of a two-tier system where, oh, people like you can just pay for a hospital appointment, for a doctor's appointment, et cetera, et cetera. And I think we need to get beyond this COVID emergency situation, particularly when you look at the numbers and the numbers aren't nearly as scary as the government's making out. And I know you're really exercised about vaccine passports and you've written about it very eloquently in your weekly Telegraph column in the paper as we speak. And do you really think, Alison, there's going to be a big political rebellion on this? Or do you think most people will just accept that vaccine passports are pretty much an inevitability? Well, we keep thinking, don't we, that surely that can't happen. Surely that can't happen. And then they all fall like skittles. I mean, the thing that most upset me this week, I guess we knew it was coming, was Chris Whitty approving COVID vaccinations for 12 to 15s, Liam, against, you'll remember, the recommendation of the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation, while simultaneously the Chief Medical Officer was managing to claim that the GCBI <laughs> agreed with him. And he actually said this is astonishing thing. I mean, one of many astonishing things he said, I thought he was being utterly, well, disingenuous is the polite word. I just think he was basically being deceitful. Chris Whitty said that kids, 12-year-old kids, are capable of understanding complex decisions about their health. And that night on the BBC, Liam, I don't know if you saw it on the news, there was a slip of a girl, a lovely girl, and she was being asked about whether she'd have the jab. And she said, oh, yes, because I want to keep my family safe. I want to keep people safe. It's good for society. And I was actually thinking, this kid has been utterly brainwashed, okay? Because what we know since the Delta variant, A, no healthy child needs a vaccination. And secondly, if they have a vaccination, they can. if they have two vaccinations, they can still get COVID and they can still pass it on. So there is literally, for a young, healthy person, there is literally no point in having it. And Chris Whitty claimed, absolutely astonishingly, I thought we were absolutely peak Kafka co-pilot. Whitty <laughs> said that this was to avoid disruption to education. You're going to vaccinate kids to avoid disruption to education. Can you think off the top of your head, co-pilot, of what might have happened to disrupt education? I mean, it, absolutely, I mean, the gobsmacking cheek of the man, basically saying, let's increase anxiety in children so we can reduce anxiety in children. The very government and medical establishment, which has repeatedly closed schools, despite people like us week after week pointing pointing out it would harm kids' mental health. Now they're seriously suggesting children must be vaccinated to keep schools open and avoid damage to the, oh, mental health. It, you know, anyway, you, you go, because I'm almost lost for words. <laughs> Surely not. <laughs> Surely not, I know. But this, this is why the JCVI was split. A group of distinguished scientists, PhDs coming out of every orifice, they were split on the question of, vaccinating 12 to 15 year olds, because as well as there being no point on the upside, because they're not going to die from COVID anyway, no. and even with the vaccination, they can still pass it on. There may even be a downside that offsets any protection they may get or not get because yeah. of the scientific evidence of heart issues in young people related to this vaccination. But you know, Alison, you're talking about lovely young people doing incredible things. We can't go through this podcast, which has been a kind of surfeit of gloom and doom yeah, so far, yeah. without mentioning the fabulous Emma Raducanu. We both watched the US Open mm. with absolute slack jaws. It's absolutely incredible match. She was amazing, 18 years old. We've never had in the open season, a qualifier winning a, a, a sort of Grand Slam title. No. She's 18. She wins it without dropping a set as a qualifier. She's British. Wow. No wonder you beautifully compared her to another famous Emma. 
Yes, Miss Emma Woodhouse, Jane Austen said, perfect despite her faults. And I said, Emma Raducanu, perfect and no double faults. Yeah, I, I'm, I thought, Liam, that Virginia Wade... See, that's why you get the big bucks. It's lines like that. You it know. is, yeah, I know. The things you can think up sitting on the loo, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I always try to drop in a Jane Austen reference if you possibly can. But you, th- th- there was a, there was a fantastic moment in our house during the final where Anthony, my resident sage, actually did a Dan Maskell impersonation when Emma was going well to... Well played s- indeed. Well played indeed. But he said, come on, Virginia. So we all remember <laughs> those moments of turmoil and yeah. dashed hopes as Virginia Wade. Well played, Wade. Sue. Well played well, Sue. Well played Frankie Durr. <laughs> I love Dan Maskell, yeah. that gorgeous, rich, sort of teak voice. Oh. A Rolls-Royce in a the Rolls voice. A Rolls-Royce in the commentary box. Whatever happened to whispering Clive Lowe with, yeah. on the snooker and Murray Walker, of course, these uh, the Formula One, these incredible commentators who unfortunately yes. are in many cases no longer with us, the voices of our lives, really. But I think coming back to what you said about watching her, I mean, it was just sublime, wasn't it? I mean, she does remind me, I mean, it sounds a bit strange, but she does remind me of Roger Federer because they've got that beautiful cat-like composure and they, yeah. their, their supreme grace and serenity yeah. just disguises yeah. this total killer yeah. aggression. But Virginia Wade, for me, Liam, put her finger on it because Virginia said... It's not that nerve-wracking watching Emma because she's so in control. Now, as you'll know, British tennis fans are just used to being absolutely put through the bloody ringer, aren't they? Come on, Tim! Come on, Tim! Come on, Tim! (laughs) (laughs) Poor old Tim Hemman, though. I mean, you know, Pete Sampras. I mean, Tim Hemman was a damn good tennis player. He was. And without Sampras, he could easily have won. I mean, four Wimbledon semis... Yeah, Joran Ivanisevic, he was winning, then the rain came. Oh, you pre, remember it well. Pre-roof Wimbledon centre court. Yeah. And isn't it nice that Tim Hemman is seeming to get some credit oh. from this incredible run of Emma Raducanu? One of my favourite things about the final was the look of total stunned delight on Tim Henman's face because he kept saying, what did she just do? What did she just do? He was absolutely generous and lovely. She could probably have beaten him at his peak. I mean, that's the honest (laughs) truth. (laughs) Sorry, Tim. I think people sometimes, you know, look down a bit on the ladies' game, but honest to God, I mean, and I think with Leila Fernandez, I think we could see uh, a great rivalry as was between. She's only 19, of course. It was wonderful, but I think it... It could have gone either way. So I think we could yeah. see a Navratilova, Chris Evert type, you know, lifelong rivalry coming up. It was almost as good as a men's match, Alison. <laughs> I was waiting for that, Halligan. It was better than the men's match. It was actually the best tennis match I've ever seen. And as I said in the column, Emma doesn't grunt. So we are spared those dreadful childbirth moans from the baseline as they try to serve. I mean, she's the total deal, isn't she, really? I for mean- her victory, for her youth, for her temperament, for her lack of grunting, we salute you, Emma Raducanu. <laughs> Come on, Virginia. <laughs> Was Churchill the hero of the Second World War or a racist imperialist whose actions led to the Bengal famine? Should his statue be protected or pulled down? And can we really judge the figures of the past with the attitudes of the present? Please do apply and permission to have the statue removed. My name is Stephen Edgington and if you're enjoying this podcast, you might like History Defended, a new series from The Telegraph. In each episode, a leading historian defends a controversial historical figure. I play devil's advocate. There are some times in wartime when incredibly difficult decisions of life and death have to be taken. Winston Churchill, Clive of India, Bomber Harris and Oliver Cromwell. Men whose actions still influence the world we live in today. Today is victory in Europe day. Search History Defended in the same place you're listening to this. I'm really thrilled at our guest in the rocket this week, Liam, 
Paul Gambaccini will be, of course, well known to Planet Normal listeners as a wonderfully erudite expert on pop music and film. Paul was born in the Bronx and came to the UK when he was 21 to study PPE at Oxford. He could have stayed in academic life, but he became a DJ, first on Radio 1, then for many other stations, famously presenting Pick of the Pops. Come on, pop pickers. <laughs> yeah, that's him. <laughs> Paul has earned the honorary emeritus title of Professor of Pop. Very, very popular figure. And then suddenly and shockingly in October 2013, following the Jimmy Savile scandals, he was arrested on charges of historic sexual abuse. Paul had never met his accusers. Nevertheless, it took over a year for the Metropolitan Police to say he was innocent. The reason I invited Paul onto The Rocket this week, co-pilot, is because he is part of a group of high-profile victims of alleged police corruption, including Lady Britton, who you'll remember was the widow of Tory Home Secretary Leon Britton, Baroness Doreen Lawrence, mother of the murdered Stephen Lawrence, and Nick, the son of the late D-Day hero Lord Dwyn Bramall. Now, seven of this group wrote an open letter last week to the Prime Minister saying that Cressida Dick, the Met Police Commissioner, should not get a two-year extension to her contract. They accused her of presiding over a culture of incompetence and cover-up. And I quote from their letter, We share a collective concern that the leadership of the Metropolitan Police Service will continue to act as though they are above the law and that the general public do not have a viable means of recourse. A few days after that letter, Liam, we learnt that Cressida Dick will remain as the head of the Met until 2024, with Home Secretary Priti Patel saying that the Commissioner would provide continuity and stability. I asked Paul Gambaccini how he had reacted to that announcement. First of all, I was not surprised, because all of the malefactors in the witch hunt have been promoted rather than demoted. I mean... Keir Starmer was given a knighthood, Alison Saunders was given a damehood, Bernard Hogan Howe was given a peerage, and Cressida Dick was made a dame commander. So this is another example of the establishment supporting itself. Nonetheless, I was uh, very disappointed because we have not had a reply yet from either the Prime Minister or the Home Secretary, and uh, the letter was delivered. Yeah. And it's just more of the same. So Cressida Dick wasn't actually head of the Met when the police came after you and other people represented in the group. Why specifically do you think she is unfit to stay in post? As I have said in a uh, now much-watched YouTube clip, which is, it has gone viral, and I'm not even Justin Bieber. (laughs) I launched my legal case against the Met in response to what I had experienced on the day that Cressida Duke took over. It took three and a half years for me to win my case against the Met. Now, this was a slam dunk. Why? Because my lawyer had the great sense to insist that we limit our accusations in my two cases against the CPS and the police to things that Sir Richard Enriquez had already said they'd done in his famous report. In other words, I wasn't saying you were rude or how dare you or this is nonsense. We were actually mentioning specifics which could not be denied since the Met had already accepted the Enrique's report. They haven't acted on his recommendations, which infuriates him. But nonetheless, this was done and dusted, historically speaking. Why did Cressida Dick and her lawyers punt me as far as they could for three and a half years? That is a question that only can be asked by them. But uh, the same happened with Harvey, Harvey Proctor. In both of our cases, the, the Met lawyers... Uh, insisted that the police had not done things that they had done. I mean, it, it, it reached the levels of farce. So are you saying she was obstructive? You'd of been course. cleared of, you'd been cleared of all, you know, the, the allegations were never able to be brought to anything and you just felt that it was what, not just unhelpful, but positively painful, I imagine, at that stage when you'd been through hell, really, hadn't you? Well, as Harvey said, the Met hope that either... You lose interest, run out of money, or die. 
And neither of us wished to do either of those three things. <laughs> and so uh, we persisted until we won. But the cases could have been abandoned at week one. This is unnecessary wronging of people you've already wronged. And that was the sense around the table at the meeting of the seven people. Yes. Can you imagine how humble I felt being with a mother whose son had been murdered and whose murder had uh, been kept from the public and kept from the full practice of justice by the Metropolitan Police and sitting next to her, a man whose brother was found with an axe in his head mm. in a case which to this day, 34 years later, the Met refused to let the truth be known. We're talking about a barbaric institution. This is not just an inconvenience. This is an organization which shames London. The Metropolitan Police are meant to serve Londoners. Londoners are not meant to serve the Metropolitan Police. But because of what I refer to as the Mafia Code of Omerta, but uh, some British people refer to as the old Code of the Freemasons, what the Met do is they gather in a circle, put their arms around each other, don't let anybody else in, and don't let the truth out. And Cressida Dick has made zero progress in reforming that commitment to the Mafia Code of Omerta. So talking about the Henriquez report, which was in 2019, that was the report looking at Operation Midland, which found that senior officers agreed to publicly say that they believed the fantasist Carl Beach, mm. also known as Nick, who claimed there was a Westminster paedophile ring. And you'll remember, Paul, that one detective famously declared at the start of the inquiry that Beach's claims were, quote, credible and true. And Judge Richard Henriquez found, he actually said, I cannot conceive that any fully informed officer could reasonably have believed Nick. Now, what motivated police officers to carry out this apparent witch hunt, apparently ignoring the evidence that was clear to Richard Henriquez and to any sane person? What was behind that witch hunt, do you think? Well, it is certainly true that if you read the accusation statements of Carl Beach, or for that sake, the accusers of myself and Cliff Richard, they are clearly what I call distressed individuals. Mm -hmm. Other people have more animated expressions for them. But we were coming off of two things. One, there was the Savile shock, and it was a shock yes. to society. And the police were terrified that they looked bad because Savile had gotten away with whatever his specific misdemeanors were, because we must remember he was never tried in his lifetime. So to the frustration of many, we cannot actually quote a single case and say with legal certainty this particular thing happened. But nonetheless, it was known that he was, uh, shall we use the word, nasty? Yeah, horrible, and, horrible. Uh, it's in Savile's autobiography that uh, the Yorkshire police knew of his activities, but he said he was confident enough that he knew about the police that if they took action against him, he would bring down the department. So obviously, police forces were terrified, and particularly the Met, that if they didn't do something for their own public relations purposes to make it look as if they were defending the population from the ravages of sexual predators, that they would be open to the criticism, well, maybe you're still... Yeah allowing sexual predators to run riot. Now, the second thing is the very unfortunate change in emphasis by the then director of public prosecutions, Keir Starmer, who said, do not focus on the accuser, focus on the accusation. And when I spoke to Michael Gove, when he was a justice minister, he said he'd spoken to the police and they'd said it all began with Keir Starmer. And in Jim Davidson's book about his uh, persecution, he says that his interviewing officers were friendly to him. But he said, why are you doing this when it's so ridiculous? And, and he said, we have been told believe every accuser. That was the policy under Hogan Howe, believe every accuser, and it followed from the Starmer instruction. Starmer 
has never admitted his error. He's never atoned. He's never apologized. He's not a real man. So what you're saying, that there was a sort of better safe than sorry culture that came into the police post-Savile, but also what I'm hearing from you, Paul, is that really significant damage done by Keir Starmer and others at that time to the presumption of innocence. Well, exactly, because the Justice System's foundation was turned on its head and innocent till proven guilty turned into guilty until proven innocent. This nation was a leader in justice in the world. I've said this many times. No one loves a country as much as someone who has chosen to live there. I was not born here. I came here. I became a British citizen. I believed this was the most humane country on earth. And I recommended to friends of mine that they move here. It breaks my heart to know that I can no longer make that recommendation. The people of this country deserve a first-class police service, and at the moment they have a third-class Stasi. Can we talk a bit now, Paul, about what happened to you personally? I remember switching on the radio in November 2013 and hearing that the former Radio 1 DJ Paul Gambaccini has been arrested on suspicion of historical sexual offences as part of Operation U-Tree. And I have to say, I was you know, stunned and dismayed to think that this was happening to someone I thought, not just thought, I knew was one of the good guys. Can you tell Planet Normal listeners what happened the moment you were arrested? I was absolutely stunned when I read that the Metropolitan Police had set up a probe called Operation U-Tree and that members of the public were invited to phone in or contact via the internet the Met and accuse celebrities saying, you will be believed. And I thought, well, in that case, I'm doomed because I was the first person to talk on television about he who cannot be named to this date, Jimmy Savile. I had been asked if I would go on to Good Morning Britain, which, of course, I was on for 13 years as TVAM and then Good Morning Britain, because they were doing a TV preview of the week, and one of the shows was going to be the exposure of Jimmy Savile. And uh, so uh, Lorraine showed me this clip on air, and I casually said, because to me it was matter of fact, I've been waiting for the story to come out for 30 years. And sure enough... What I thought might happen did come to pass, which is that, and I apologize for the siren in the background, and that was someone saw me on TV and said to his fiancée, how dare he say that about Jimmy Savile when he did that to me? I'm going to get him. Well, this particular person happened to be a serial unsuccessful accuser as well as a serial, serious drug abuser. And in the period after I saw that U-Tree had opened up until the police actually came to my door, I said to my lawyer, my PA, and of course my husband, don't be surprised if you hear that I get a visit from the police because They've said to members of the public, you will be believed. Whatever it was, 4.30 on that morning when when you, eight policemen turned up? Eight policemen, yeah. And uh, one of them says, you are under arrest for blah, 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 blah. So they came in. I had utterly irrelevant items taken, including the press release from 1969 saying that I had been made the general manager of my college radio station. What that had to do with alleged sexual offenses in the 1970s is beyond me. Tell me, what, what did you feel? Were you, were, you, were you filled with horror? Were you, were you crying? What happened? I never cried during the entire police ordeal because I was instantly angry. And also I had anticipated that I would be placed into the system because I'd been on TV and somebody would quite possibly, I I thought the odds were 50-50, add two and two and get five. And 
you know, it's terrifying to think we live in a country where it's not safe to go on television. Okay, so I know you have very strong feelings about the accused being identified in such cases. But of course, cases like the Jimmy Savile, Rolf Harris case, people being identified in some of the cases do bring more victims forward, not the kind of guys you're talking about. So if there's a named predator it may encourage actual real victims to come forward. Isn't this a problem, Paul, to some extent? I think it's only a problem if you misread the history of what actually happened during the witch hunt. The case that is cited most often by well-intentioned supporters of no anonymity before charge is the Stuart Hall case. Well, look at how Stuart Hall had more accusers come forward after he was arrested. Yes, but he was arrested and charged on the same day. In Utree, the police were not detectives, they were stenographers. They would wait for people to phone. When my case was over and my items were returned to me, one of the two officers who brought the materials, he said, when Max Clifford was named, the phone rang and rang. When you were named, nobody rang. You must never think nobody cares about you. Many people do. Many. I thought at that very instance, that is the closest to an apology I'm going to get from the police. Two honest policemen are telling me that many members of the force did not disagree with this tactic of using people as human flypaper. What really irritates me, because, you know, I've made my career out of facts. And in my case, in Midland, in Cliff Richard, there are howling errors of fact in the accusation statements. For example, he claimed that on several visits to my uh, apartment, he had met the pop star Lamal. My flatmate, the pop star Lamal, the police officer says, and when was the last time you met Lamal? And he says, 1981. Well, first of all, not only did Lamal never live at that property, but he wasn't even Lamal in 1981. He didn't have a record until 1983. So if he had seen him in 1981, he would have thought, Oh, that's some bloke called Chris. What I'm appreciating, Mr. Gambaccini, is that the professor of pop, the veteran pop factastic Gambaccini, is actually taking issue with actual pop history being misrepresented, which I think is great. Cliff Richard is an old friend of yours. I know you've been very upset about the way that the BBC behaved towards Cliff, famously sending a helicopter to film police arriving at his house. What was his reaction to it? How did, how did he feel? Uh, shock, horror. He was in Portugal. A friend called him and said, turn on the news. Your house is being raided. Can you imagine being in another country and a friend of yours calls you up and says, turn on the news. Your house is being raided. His pants were held up to camera. Gosh. And he fell to the ground weeping. And his former priest, confidant, said to him, get up. You're going to beat this. And from that moment forward, Cliff, helped by his friends, fought back. Five years after I had been suspended from the BBC for a year, I received an invitation from Director General Hall to meet him. Five years. And in that half-hour session, he privately apologized to me four times, but, but would never make a public apology. And I tried to explain to him how deeply the BBC had erred. The Cliff Richard episode would not have occurred had it not been for the BBC. He was acting throughout on his own public relations purposes and not on the merits of the cases. And that's why the BBC got Cliff's case, my case, Tony Blackburn's non-case, and the Operation Midland, all wrong because they never did a single piece of investigative journalism to find out what this was all about. They were only acting to give the impression that they were tough on 
sexual abuse. I said to him, and I'm so glad I had the opportunity to do so, and I did. I said, when you wrote to the Attorney General asking for a freedom of the press law, which would allow people to act as the BBC had done and report on uh, accusations before arrest, let alone charge. Cliff Richard was never arrested and never charged. He was only raided. And I said to Tony Hall's face, I said, well, you should know that when I read that you had done that, I immediately wrote to the attorney general asking him to ignore you because what you were asking for was not freedom of the press, but the freedom to disseminate lies. And that is what the BBC did during the witch hunt. It disseminated lies. Just so Planet Normal listeners know, you wrote a wonderful book about a terrible experience, which is all about the horror, really, of not being believed. And that's Love, Paul Gambaccini, My Year Under the Yew Tree. I can highly recommend for listeners who want to find out more. Paul, how has this experience changed you as a person? What would Chris, your husband, say it's done to you? How how have I changed? A loss in the belief of the integrity of institutions, which is a great loss. But more than compensated by the ever-growing realization of the value of my dear ones, my husband Chris, my closest friends, who stood by me throughout. I was, in 1973, thrilled to join what I did think was and what was, at that time, the greatest broadcaster in the world. And I have lost my faith in the integrity of both institutions. Again, with the BBC, I make the distinction between the corporate management and the network management. As we make the distinction between the management of the Metropolitan Police and the Bobbies on the Beat, we all admire the 90 to 95% of the police who are good, honest, hardworking people. So I have no problems with the network management. But unfortunately, under Lord Hall, the gap between corporate management and the networks became a chasm. I'm just going to want to end with an upbeat thing because you're rightly celebrated, Paul Gambaccini, as Professor of Pop wonderful erudite presenter of Pick of the Pops and Counterpoint, so many memorable shows. You know, Paul, you did me a great service when I was a teenager. You instilled in me a lifelong love of Stevie Wonder. My musical taste was to a great extent formed by your coverage of the American charts, and I've passed on that love of Stevie to both of my children, so I'm grateful to you for that. Was there one piece of music, were there any songs during that terrible year that sustained you? Well, there were a few, but since you've named Stevie Wonder, I will name Uptight Everything's Alright. Not only is it one of the two best out-of-news records ever for DJs to play, but it's such an upbeat song, such a thrilling, inspiring song. He is just a gift, you know. I've had the almost unique privilege of sitting next to him on the piano bench as he played. Ah, my God. Amazing. I was uh, hosting a news conference and he wanted to illustrate his answers by playing. And there are just some people who have a gift which is so great, we, for all intents and purposes, might as well call it divine. And I can understand how a genius like Beethoven could exist because I have known Stevie Wonder. That's wonderful. So we'll forget about Cressida Dick and here's to Stevie Wonder. For once in my life, I won't let sorrow hurt me, not like it's hurt me before. Paul Gambaccini, thank you for coming aboard the Planet Normal Rocket. It's been lovely to have you. You're very welcome. Well, the guy's got great taste in music. Isn't she lovely? I just called to say I love you. Wonderful Stevie Wonder as the final thought there. But let that not detract from an astonishingly powerful interview. I was tearing up listening to... Paul Gambaccini there discussed in a very, very dignified way how he felt as he was under investigation. And I'd forgotten, actually, that Cliff Richard wasn't even arrested, let alone charged. And yet he had all that stress in his life as well. 
Yes, as Paul said, Liam, he was used as human flypaper, such a vivid phrase, to attract other accusations. And I know that he's got quite a lot of publicity recently. He was on the Victoria Derbyshire show and the clip went viral where he seemed to lose it and everyone was saying, gosh, he's so angry, so ill-mannered. And he's not an angry or ill-mannered person. He's been made to be like that by this, you know, absolutely horrendous ordeal. He's actually very, very genial, lovely, lovely. He's one of the good guys. And I guess this shows you what happens. Liam, I think one of the worst things we can imagine is to not be believed. And that's what happens. I think there's a broader question, isn't there, about this arrogance and entitlement in some of our institutions where very senior people who've got things extremely badly wrong neither own up nor feel that they have to accept any punishment, let alone do the dignified thing and resign. And I think Paul Gambaccini and his group are absolutely right to point the finger at these people and demand accountability for the public. Never apologise, never explain. Anyway... Now on to the really important part of the show, our listener emails, a selection of the fantastic messages you send Liam and I each week to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We absolutely love hearing from you and they often give rise to topics for the podcast. Here's a fantastic one from Louise that caught my eye. Alison, your article in the Telegraph about vaccinating children brought tears to my eyes. What has happened to our country, our politicians, our families? Thanks to our old style family GP, I have four limbs. My mother suffered terrible morning sickness during her pregnancy with me. I'm now a 64 year old granny to five. The GP prescribed my mother a new wonder drug called thalidomide. But as per his oath taken to do no harm, he recommended my mother not to take it as it was a new drug and he felt nervous as in his opinion it was untested and therefore unsafe. So there the bottle sat next to mum's bed, glass of water at the ready but never swallowed. Thank you so much mummy and I'm sorry I made you feel so sick. The same feeling of fear and horror is with me for those poor darling children who may be coerced into having the novel mRNA vaccine. Safe for children, they say. How do they know? They absolutely do not know. My darling dad, age 92, so excited and trusting about his Pfizer vaccine, developed pneumonia within five days of his first jab, diagnosed over the phone by a GP he'd never met before. My dad insisted on getting his second jab three weeks later, even though I was begging him to wait. But he duly had his second jab and died later. And guess what? He tested positive for COVID. Without the jab, which made him so weak, I think he would have survived his bout of COVID. My husband's cousin, a real high flyer, after his jab, has acute onset encephalitis. His life as he knew it is over. I do wonder sometimes what triggered that out of the blue. As COVID survivors, my husband and I have our antibodies checked every 12 weeks, the third test in about three weeks. On test two, our antibodies had increased by a third. Our body's utterly amazing immune systems are working just fine. Thanks to you and Liam for the wonderful podcast. That's a powerful email. And here's another one from David. Okay, where do I start? How many of the emails we get start along those lines, Okay, says David, where do I start? Boris is, in my mind, a liberal dressed up as a conservative. He did one amazing job getting us out of the EU with Brexit, but yet still he has us hanging around, pussyfooting with Brussels, as though he still wants us tied to to Europe. It's been long enough, Boris. They're playing games and are happy using Northern Ireland as an excuse. Surely the pandemic was the perfect storm to release us on WTO terms. As for COVID-19, if Boris had surrounded himself with people who could understand data, then surely he could have seen how manipulative the scientists have been. Let's chart admissions versus discharges. Simple maths. Not scaring the country and giving the masters in the NHS the excuse they have needed for years of shutting up shop. Do I believe the pandemic is real? Absolutely, I believe that. Do I believe every death is COVID-related? Not a chance. 
So what does our Trojan horse do? Impose a permanent tax on a temporary problem. Oh, how very conservative. My issue is how the hell did he get the MPs to sign off on the NIC increase? What's wrong with holding back for a few years on infrastructure improvements like HS2? Sad day the Tories are no longer conservative. They have moved way left. Very disappointed in our government, but not with you guys. Still doing a brilliant job on Planet Normal of keeping us on the right track. That's a big theme for listeners, Liam. I think people are not huge. I think people are not averse to spending more on the NHS, but what they really object to is sort of throwing money, throwing good money after bad. Now we've got two dads writing in about the vaccination of children. Andy says, most 12-year-olds will probably go with what their parents want. Most 16-year-olds will probably go the opposite way. It's nothing to do with making an informed choice. It's to do with whether the parents are informed and whether the children at that age have a modicum of common sense or whether they think that everything their parents say is wrong. That's familiar, isn't it, Liam? I'm just glad my son is 12 and as determined as I am that he won't be jabbed. If he was four years older, he'd probably be first in the queue just to annoy me. Yes, well said, Andy. And Ian says, many debates in our house already with a 12-year-old and 14-year-old about getting the vaccine. They've both had COVID, so are at very little risk from catching or spreading the virus. There is nothing about natural immunity in what the government has already said. You don't vaccinate healthy kids for a virus that barely makes them ill. You certainly don't vaccinate kids that have already had that virus. There will be many more like my two in the same situation. As for COVID itself, it was more like a bad cold for my kids. Ill for a couple of days, really not an issue. Here's one from Pamela and Stephen. Just listen to your always excellent Planet Normal. Last week, whilst having a chat with the 13-year-old granddaughter, we learned that she was not keen on the jab. Likewise, her mother wasn't keen, but she, the granddaughter, said she thought she would have the jab, as if not, she would be shamed into it by her friends, in quotes. Her mum said yes, she thought there was pressure on them to have it. By the way, we just wondered if Captain Tom's fund going towards diversity is going towards diversity managers in the NHS. <laughs> With best wishes to you and Liam, keep up the good work. And a quick one from Molly... Alison Molly wrote in to say, asking people to lock down this winter for those who refuse to get vaccinated is utterly unjust. Those who refuse the jab know and understand their choice, and that's entirely a matter for them. That's right, Liam. You know, my one of my theories is that they've been having a lot of trouble persuading some members of ethnic minorities to have the jab. And we've got about five or six million people who haven't wanted to be vaccinated, which is absolutely their right. But I think to get up the numbers and to compete with our European counterparts, that's why they're turning their attention to younger and younger children. And finally, from Nigel, who lives in Sweden, lucky, lucky guy. <laughs> Why can't we live in Sweden, Halligan? They wouldn't have us. <laughs> Regarding Alison's thoughts on child vaccination, give her a damehood and make her prime minister with Liam as her chancellor. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? <laughs> well, Can you imagine I... the, the, the number 10, number 11 <laughs> tensions? God, we'd make Blair and Brown look like a sort of hippie commune, wouldn't we? She said What? I can see you being a really good chancellor. I'm not sure even Velma, highly trained Velma, would manage to be <laughs> prime minister. And Nigel continues, as the UK under a conservative government becomes even more dirigiste than France, let alone the Scandinavian social democracies, two of which have declared the pandemic over, indeed they have, the pilot and co-pilot of Planet Normal are Britain's only hope. We certainly are. And on that bombshell... That is it from Planet Normal for another week. We leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reason views. Email of the week. It's your turn, Alison. I thought Louise is about avoiding philidamide because her mum wouldn't take the wouldn't take the tablets, and that Absolutely. feels very powerful, powerful and resonant. Powerful. Well done to Louise's mum, and an object lesson to us all in not taking medicines that haven't been properly tested. So email us, Louise, and put in the subject heading email of the week. Planet Normal at telegraph.co.uk. Your Planet Normal mug will be winging its way to you. 
If you enjoy Planet Normal, do leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We're getting really lovely cluster of reviews there. It does help others to find us so the Planet Normal crazy family can grow. Every Thursday morning, Telegraph subscribers can talk to me on the Telegraph website. We can talk about Paul Gambaccini tomorrow and about the winter plan. You lucky things. Find the article labelled Planet Normal, leave a comment beneath it, and I will reply between 11am and noon. Do keep emailing us. We do love your emails, as Alison said. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of planet Earth looms back into view, <laughs> thanks as ever to our producers, Louisa Wells, Isabel Bouchard, and Elliot Lampitt, and of course, editor Theodora Ludis, who keeps us all on the straight and narrow. Stay safe, stay in touch with us and with each other. And until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.